morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you would, go ahead and open up in your Bible with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you just open your Bible right to the middle, that should get you pretty close to Psalm. Psalm 119, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 16. So as you're, ori- or as you're getting there, let me just kind of orient us a little bit. We are in the middle of a series called Life on Purpose. And so for our first week in 2019, we looked at some of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he said that wide and easy is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow and hard is the path and the gate that leads to life. And so we talked about the principle of the path, that the path that you are on determines where you are going. Your direction, not your intention, determines where you end up. So if I'm standing here and I want to go to Denver, if my intent is to walk to Denver, but if I'm on a path that leads south, doesn't matter what I want, I'm still going to end up in Denver. Principle of the path. And so then last week, Mark walked us through five faith catalysts, spiritual disciplines, means of grace, call them whatever you want, five things that the Lord uses to grow our faith, to encourage us, to help us as we walk on the, the hard and narrow path. And so those five things, uh, Mark was more polished than I am, they all started with the same letter, uh, but the way I remember it is just word, prayer, rest or Sabbath, community, and service. Those are the five things that God uses to spark our faith, encourage our faith, to grow us as believers. And so what we're just going to do for the next few weeks is we are going to look individually at some of those faith catalysts. We're just going to take a, you know, last week was kind of a broad overview. The next few weeks we're going to focus more in depth on some of those. And so if you are at all familiar with Psalm 119, you can probably guess which of those five things we're going to be focusing on this morning. We are going to be focusing on the role that the Word of God plays in our discipleship. So Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It is 176 verses. And throughout all 176 verses, it has one subject as its theme. It is talking about the Word of God. And so there are a lot of synonyms that you'll find in here. You'll find uh, laws or commandments or statutes or precepts or testimonies. And just over and over and over, in different ways and from, from slightly different angles, the psalmist is extolling and exalting in the Word of God. And so w- whenever I you know, read things like rules, commandments, statutes, precepts, I feel like I'm about to start reading some tax code, and, and I just kind of space out. You know, it's just really, you know, how do you delight in tax code? Um, so, so there's something about the form and the structure and just how this psalm is written that I think can can help protect us from viewing this as, you know, filling out your taxes. So if you look at each paragraph or stanza, there's probably a word above that paragraph that that you might not recognize. It says Aleph, or it looks like Beth, Gimel, Daleth. So what those are, those are simply the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the Old Testament, the psalms are written in Hebrew, And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so what the psalmist is doing is he is making an acrostic out of the alphabet. So it's like he's going A, B, C, D. And the first paragraph, each of those eight verses all start with A, or the Hebrew letter Aleph. Second stanza, B, or Beit. 
looks like Beth, it's pronounced bait, and just A, B, C, D, all the way down uh, for the entire psalm. Day one of Hebrew class, you know, you start out by learning the alphabet. We actually learned it to the tune of Yankee Doodle, and so I've just had that song stuck in my head all week. Um, so if I'm a little wired or crazy, it's just because I've been listening to one song on repeat um, for seven days. So uh, just before we dive into this, I think we need to know that this is not primarily uh, a stiff, rigid, professional you know, tax code about God's law. First and foremost, this is poetry. This is a man who is being met with the Word of God, and he is reflecting on it with all of his imagination, with all of his creativity. This is a very personal and very intimate expression of what the Word of God is. And so, so just keep that in mind as, as we study uh, this passage. We're not going to do all 176 verses, just eight of them. But just keep that in mind uh, for the rest of our time together and if you ever come back to Psalm 119. And so we're going to be looking at the bait paragraph, the second paragraph, verses 9 through 16. So I'll, I'll read that for us and then uh, ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Starting in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Lord, thank you for the gift that your word is to us. We ask that by your spirit you would open up our eyes that we can behold wondrous things in your law. Show us Jesus through your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. So verse 9 begins with a question. And this question casts a shadow over the rest of the paragraph. The way that we interpret this passage and the way that we apply this passage, all of those things have to be funneled through this opening question. And the opening question is, how can a young man keep his way pure? So, so that question assumes a few things. One, it assumes that purity is a good thing. It doesn't ask, should a young man keep his way pure? Or, you know, what are the pros and cons of a young man keeping his way pure? It assumes that purity, holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness, it assumes that those are good things and that we should desire them. And secondly, this question is posed to a young man. So, so it seems like the psalmist is going out of his way to highlight both the necessity of purity but specifically the necessity of purity for a young person. And so obviously this psalm was written thousands of years ago. I don't think a lack of purity in young people is a new thing. But I think it is safe to say that a lack of concern for holiness and godliness definitely generalizes most new generations. And I think that you know, every generation has their sin, and usually, 
younger generations look to the faults and the sins of their older generation, and they just completely overcorrect. They swing the pendulum, they overcorrect, and they run into the other side of the ditch. So just all of church history is just generation after generation messing up in opposite ways of each other. And so specifically when it comes to the purity and, and the holiness and the godliness that this psalm is talking about, I, I think, at least speaking for myself and for a lot of people, my generation, maybe within 10 years of me or so, I think a lot of us have seen a gap in how our parents have talked about and taught us holiness. So this, this is a blanket statement. I know this doesn't apply to everybody, but for the younger crowd in the room, see if this strikes a chord. I, I think a lot of us were taught, don't do drugs, don't have sex, you know, don't drink, and don't do those things and God will love you. Or don't do those things because we want to promote good conservative family values. Or don't do those things because we want to help usher in this golden age in society of Christianity. And, and so we, we were given the commands of God without the grace of God. We were given the rules, never the relationship. We were given the what, never the why. And so I think just as a, a younger generation, we have seen kind of that gap and we've just completely abandoned everything that we were taught about holiness and gone to the other side. And so just something that I've seen in myself and people around me, there just seems to be a lack of concern about holiness. Um, you know, we, we use crude language, or, you know, if your parents didn't drink, maybe you just don't agree with that. And so just as a small act of rebellion, you know, you're going to go beyond a moderate, responsible amount, just, you know, have one more just to say, here you go, mom and dad, here's my Christian liberty. Um, you know, you know the, the music and the movies that I watch would make my grandmother's uh, mouth absolutely drop. And, and I do it all in the name of Christian liberty or cultural relevance. Um, I, I just think there, there's this lack of concern for holiness. So I became a Christian when I was in college. I Grew up in the church. I was around the gospel a lot. I benefited from being close to the gospel a lot, but I never personally believed. And so I went, you know, to the University of Alabama. Um, and yes, Brad, I am in mourning right now. Uh, and so I, I went into Tuscaloosa, and most Christian kids go in, and then they leave without their faith. So I did it backwards. I went in without faith and came in. So I did Tuscaloosa backwards. And with my call to Christ came a call to ministry. And so I started spending a lot of time with my college pastor, Chris, Chris Brooks. And, and he was, you know, a great mentor. He just taught me, you know, he kind of got my feet wet in ministry, taught me counseling, how to read the Bible, some leadership, just some, some basics of, of being a pastor. And, and he set up some teaching opportunities for me. So I would go and preach for the youth group, or I would lead this, you know, small Bible study. And the first few times that I did those, Chris would come and hear me. And after I'd done it a few times, we sat down, and he said, Matthew, those sermons weren't great. They, they weren't even good. But some talent is there. You have some sort of teaching ability. So with some training and with a lot of practice, you're going to be fine. That's not what I'm worried about. He said, what I am worried about is your character. I see the teaching ability. I see the competency, but I'm not seeing the holiness and the character. What I'm seeing is this young, hotshot Christian who is on a mission to fix 
every little wrong thing that he heard at home and at the church. You know, th- this guy is just going to uh, go teach the, the love and the grace of God in a very unloving and very ungracious way. You know, this guy is just going to be right all of the time, but he is just going to leave a trail of carnage behind him. There's just no sense of gentleness or humility or patience or respect. And so Chris turned to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he showed me the qualifications for being an elder, for being a pastor, for an overseer. And he pointed out that there are 14 qualifications, and only one of them has anything to do with an ability or a skill. That's being able to teach. He said, you're going to get there with that. But 13 of those qualifications are all about character and holiness and godliness. You're supposed to be respectable, gentle, self-controlled, hospitable. So the best pastors are not the best preachers. The best pastors are the ones who have godly, holy character. And and so Chris just had a really honest conversation with me. It was a tough conversation, but I'm, I'm very grateful for it. He wanted me to walk in a way honoring to the Lord, and he also wanted me to be, to be in ministry for 40 years instead of just five. And so he knew the principle of the path. He could see where this was going. And so from my very early days as a Christian, Chris started teaching the importance of pursuing holiness and godliness. And so specifically to the younger crowd, you know, maybe to the 35 and under, just because you may have been taught holiness in an unhelpful way, don't throw out the whole thing. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Holiness is not a four-letter word. Striving and working hard and giving effort by the grace and the Spirit of God is not legalism. I loved how the hymn that we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it said, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. So the, the, that is a good way to say it, but to put it a different way, we have to rely on the strength and the grace that God supplies, and then we strive to pursue holiness. Jesus said, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. We are called by a holy God to be a holy people. So someone asked me a few days ago if I had made any New Year's resolutions, and honestly, just not that big of a New Year's guy. Never really made a resolution, but the more I thought about it and the more that I reflected on this, and, and this might sound cheesy, that's fine, but I, I just want to be holier in 2019. I want to be slower to speak and quicker to listen. I want to assume less and seek reconciliation more. I want to you know, have faster eyes and fingers when something inappropriate comes across one of my screens. I, I want to be more humble and be genuinely glad when something great happens to another person. I'm just ready to grow out of the edgy Christian rebel phase. And I'm sure, you know, if you're 45 and up, it's painfully obvious you can see it in me and in my generation. Uh, So so thanks for being gracious with that. Um, I just think I'm done with it. I, I want to be able to look back in a year and say I'm holier then than I am now. I want that for me, I want that for everyone in this room, and I want that especially for the young people. The principle of the path is real. Holiness leads one way, and unholiness leads another. 
Hebrews 12 says that strive for, seek the holiness without which you will not see God. And so what what I'm afraid, what I don't want to happen is for us to get 20 years down the road and we've been neglecting to build our holiness and to build our character. And I don't want us to get 20 years down the road and we are the leaders in our workplaces, in our churches, and our character can't support our competencies. I want us to be a holy people who love and look like Jesus. That is who he has called us to be. So, so that's the goal, that's the, that's the why, that's the big picture aim, you know, to, to look at Jesus, to see him as holy, and in beholding him that we would become more like him, that we would become more holy ourselves, so that's the why. And then the rest of the verse and the rest of the paragraph give us the how. How does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And that's the same answer that we get for the other seven and a half verses. The way that you grow in holiness is by growing in your understanding of the Holy One. And so there are two kinds of knowing, two kinds of understanding that this psalm sets forth for us that we need to have. And one is just a mental and intellectual understanding of who God is uh, according to his word. So verse 12 says, teach me your statutes. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. I will think long and hard. Verse 16, I will not forget your word. I will commit it to memory. So these verses are talking about doing the hard mental work that it takes to know God through his word. I talked to a lot of people, and I I think it's become a pretty vogue idea today to say, I just want to love God, I want to experience God, I want to have a relationship with God, and I don't think any kind of mental or intellectual understanding is necessary for that. It might even hurt my love for God. I hear people say, you know, God is just so much bigger than we are, you know, he's a complete mystery, so even if we did try and figure him out, you know, we would never be able to figure him out fully, so I'm just not even going to try to understand him. I'm going to be content with 100% mystery. I read a book over Christmas break uh, about something called the Emergent Church. And the Emergent Church has a lot of very attractive things about it. They, they really value community and missional living, and so they are always seeking ways that they can get outside of their little Christian bubble. They are always thinking, how can I evangelize? How can I bring the gospel to this area of my life? You know, at work or at the gym or on my team, you know, book club, whatever it is. They also really value authenticity. It's just a lot of the Christianese language that slips in. You know, I just I have a heart for that person, or you know, bless so and so. You know, they they don't like to hide behind fluffy language. So they they are very honest and real. And you know, they really value cultural engagement. You know, how can I uh, transform this part of culture? How can I redeem that with the gospel? And so honestly, a lot of that sounds like what we aim at here, Redemption Park. But, but the one thing that you will not find in any emergent church is a statement of faith. They, they do not believe in truth. That there is objective, propositional truth that God has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand. And, and so while it might sound holy or humble or loving to say God is so much bigger than we are, we can't understand him, or I just want to experience that relationship emotionally, it, 
it sounds great, it sounds humble, but it's actually a false humility. It's saying that God can't reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand. And so while we might not be able to understand God fully, 100%, we can understand him truly. He has revealed himself accurately to us in his word. Jesus gave the great commandment in Mark 12. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, so doing the hard mental work, the asking questions, the wrestling with the text, and refusing to let go until you get an answer, that is not an unloving way to build your relationship with God. That is an incredibly loving way. Lauren says, I'm a broken record. I've only got five jokes and five pithy sayings. And, and one of those is that you cannot love what you do not know. The reason why I love Lauren is because I actually know her. I spend time with her. I study her. I ask questions of her. I do the hard work of getting to know her. And because of what I know to be true, that is why I love her. So you cannot love God without knowing God through his word. Which leads us to the second kind of understanding that we see in this text, which is the heart kind of knowing, the emotional, loving, delighting in God's word kind of knowing. In verse 10, we read, with my whole heart, I seek you. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. So again, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I read another book over Christmas break. You can tell I partied pretty hard over the break. And this book is called You Are What You Love. And uh, there was only one book that I read twice in 2018, and this was it. You Are What You Love. It was just so formational for me. And what this book did is it challenged our Western, post-enlightenment, overly rationalistic way of thinking that you are what you think. And so most of us, even if we have never thought about it or said it, have been brought up to assume that what you think, what you know, determines everything that you do, that your brain is the core of who you are, and everything that you do flows out of that. If you think about it, that's just not true. I know that eating junk food is bad for me. So why do I still do it? Because I want to. It tastes good. It, it's what I desire. I, I know intellectually that gossiping is wrong, but it just feels so good to scratch that itch. I think every Christian in here would say that they know that pornography is wrong. So the reason why it's such a constant struggle and issue isn't because of lack of knowledge. It's because you still want to do it. And so I am not... At my core, a six foot six, 230 pound walking brain. I'm not a compilation of everything that I know. I'm not my intellect. I think it's more accurate to say that I am a compilation of my heart. You are a compilation of what you want, what you long for, what you desire, what you delight in. What you want determines everything that you do. And so this psalm is telling us to love, to have a heartfelt desire, to have a longing and a delight for God in his word. But how do you do it? I think everyone would agree that, yeah, I want to love God and to love his word, but I just don't know 
how to get there. There's a great story in Luke 24. It's a few days after Jesus' resurrection, and he is walking on the Emmaus Road, and he disguises himself. I don't know exactly how he does it, but he hides his identity, and he walks up to these two disciples, and he sees that they are just overcome with sadness. They are just downtrodden in tears, and he says, hey guys, what's up? And they respond to him. They say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all of this? And they basically asked him, asked him have you been living under a rock? Which, yes, he had. <laughs> and so, so Jesus plays ball with them a little bit, and he listens to, to why they're sad. And they said, there, there was this man named Jesus. He was the promised one. He, he was the Messiah. He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was the one who was going to deliver Israel out from Roman oppression. He was going to usher in the kingdom of God. All of our hopes and dreams rested on Jesus. And then they crucified him, and he's buried, he's dead, he's gone. And so then Jesus had a conversation with him. He, he revealed himself, he showed uh, who he really was, and he said, brothers, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he started with Moses, and he went throughout the entire Old Testament, and he showed that everything there was pointing to him, that he was the fulfillment of everything. So he started with Moses. Moses, who represented mankind to God, and who came back from God and delivered God's word to man, that mediator role, what Moses did, well, Jesus is now the God-man. He is man's representative and God's representative in one person. He is the mediator. The, the temple that they had to travel to in Jerusalem, the place where heaven and earth meet, Jesus was heaven walking around on earth. All the sacrifices that they had made, they never actually saved anyone. They just reminded them of their need for a redeemer. Jesus said, I am the ultimate sacrifice. Those uh, the blood of goats and bulls can never save you. As a human, I can actually save you because I'm sinless. I am actually what you need. And so just page by page and book by book, slowly, Jesus reinterpreted the Old Testament for them and showed them that everything was a sign. It was just pointing to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the New Testament, or of the Old Testament. So later that night, as these disciples were trying to wrap their minds around what had happened, they were debriefing and they reflected on the way that Jesus interpreted the scriptures. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Did our hearts not burn within us? Have you ever had that moment? It's either early in the morning or late at night where you're just alone reading your Bible or you're in this great Bible study or you're listening to a sermon and just the Spirit is revealing the Word to you in a way that even though you might be totally silent, you might look stone cold on the outside, but on the inside, your heart and your passions are just on fire for Jesus. Tim Keller, our, apparently our evangelical pope, guy who wrote the New City Catechism, he said that when you're preaching to white people, the way that you know that you and the Spirit are in a groove, the way you know when you're preaching, preaching, is when those white people put their pen down. It's when they actually stop taking notes. Because at this point, it's not about bullet points. It's not about following an argument. It's not about getting the quote exactly right. It is just about basking in the glory 
of Jesus, seeing him for as he is and letting your heart and your passions be stirred and changed and risen for him. So, so that's the kind of burning, that's the kind of delight, that's the kind of longing and desires that we are to have for God's word. And you get that when you read the scriptures the way that Jesus taught us to. When you read the scriptures in light of Christ. So when you read the Old Testament in anticipation for what Christ is going to do, seeing uh, all of it is just a pointer, all of it is good, but it's not quite what we need yet, that is when the Old Testament will come alive to you. Or when you read the New Testament in light of what Jesus has done, you know, if, if you read James, or, or it's a very practical book, there are a lot of commands, you know, take care of widows and orphans, watch your tongue, be careful what you say, be patient in your suffering. Apart from Christ, those are very oppressive and hard rules to keep. But when you realize that Christ has died, that he has fulfilled all of those things, and that he has given you his spirit, that you might walk in the good works that he has prepared before you, those laws stop from being oppressive, and they, you see them as good. You see them as delighting to your soul. They are a firm foundation that you can grasp onto, and that you can live your life by in a godly, holy, and pure way. So yes, following God's laws and his word can be hard, but ultimately they are good for you. Because they show you Jesus, and they show you how to follow him more. So just a little application. If we are going to know God, if we are going to love God, if we are come to, to become holy like God is holy, then we have to be people of God's word. We have to immerse ourselves in this word. So it's January 13th. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have already given up on your Bible reading plan for 2019? Or maybe you're still in the game, but in the back of your mind, you know that Leviticus is right around the corner. <laughs> and you're just go ahead and penciling that in as a loss. Just, I, I can't get through Leviticus. So maybe you're listening to me and you're like, yeah, Matthew, this sounds great. God's word is important. I know that I need to read it. I want to do that. But I got to be honest, the Bible is a big, intimidating book. It, you know, crosses... A lot of years and a lot of cultures, it's written by different people and in ways that I don't really understand. I, I just have a really hard time getting it. I got to tell you, I'm right there with you. You know, I went to seminary for three and a half years. I just went into this dark hole and studied this and came out and Trump was president. I don't know what happened. Um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, I just, I was in black hole for a while. You know, and now as a pastor, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time, a lot of my hours go toward this word. You know, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 2 Peter 3.16. So Peter is writing a letter to some Christians, and he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So you have Peter who wrote two letters in the New Testament, and who, as far as I'm concerned, went to the best seminary in the world. Jesus taught every single course. And you have Peter saying that when he reads Paul, sometimes he feels like he's in over his head. So, sometimes he just can't make heads or tails of it. So, so if that's you, know that you are in good company. So just, you know, to be really practical, if you are a very young believer, you know, maybe you've only been following the Lord for one or two years, or if you're not a believer, 
Maybe you're just coming to taste and see if the Lord is good. No, you don't have to hit a home run every time. Singles and doubles are great. So I think a really good goal for somebody like that would just be to read the New Testament in 2019. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. And so if you read one chapter a day, Monday through Friday, if you took weekends off, you just read one chapter a day, Monday through Friday, then you would be able to read the entire New Testament in one year. And if you get that one, then I, next year I would do the entire New Testament and then do Psalms and Proverbs. And, you know, the next year, do the New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, and the first five books of the Old Testament. I think that's a great place to start. Or, or if that's too much, you know, just start with one book. You know, I would recommend starting with Mark, the Gospel of Mark. That, that Gospel is all about answering the question, who is Jesus, what has he come to do, and what is discipleship? How do you follow him? Or, or read First John. That, that book is all, is all, is all about giving you assurance of your faith. It gives you uh, evidences and fruits that you can look to to know that you are truly following the Lord. And so if you're just in that one to two year young believer range, I would really recommend that to you. If you're a little further along in your walk, I'd, I'd recommend Matthew or, or Philippians. You know, just, if you're just starting out, don't jump in you know, to the middle of Isaiah or to the, the heart of Romans. You know, you, you'll get there eventually, but just get on base first. I'd also really recommend a good study Bible. You know, they're, they're really big. They have a lot of great notes. You can judge the other people at the coffee shop because your Bible is a lot bigger than theirs. So that's, that's fine. Um, and so what they do is they just give you some of the content, uh, the time setting, who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they wrote it to for each book. And then they have just kind of verse-by-verse verse explanation. So if one verse is confusing, you can read this note or it'll have a reference to another verse. It'll kind of help explain and interpret that one. So I would, you know, come up to, to me or to Mark. You know, we, we would love to be able to equip you in that way. But, but just to close, I want to return to another thing that Chris taught me and something that he preached about and he just drilled into to all of his students was something that he called the daily drip of obedience. The daily drip of obedience. And so a lot of times, especially around the new year, you get really excited about your resolution. I'm going to read the Bible this year. I'm going to work out this year. I'm going to, you know, lose 20 pounds, or I'm going to be the perfect dad, the perfect mom, you know, whatever it is. But two weeks in, and you're, you're done. And so what Chris said is that something that's a lot more impressive than that uh, one gigantic emotional tidal wave of obedience and worship, something a lot more impressive is just a daily drip of obedience. Read one chapter a day. Pray five minutes a day. See how you can love somebody else one time a day. And that as you do that, slowly and humbly and consistently, just that drip, 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 over time, your character is being built. You are seeing Jesus. You are following Jesus. You are building your character. So that eventually, you know, 40 years from now, you are going to look a lot more like Jesus because you've been following him every single day day. That's my prayer for me, and that's our prayer for all of us. So if you would, I'll pray for the Lord to bless us in these things. Lord, thank you for your grace to us in revealing yourself to us in your word. Father, we don't 
live and die on bread alone, but on your very word. Would you give us a hunger and a delight and a joy in knowing you and in loving you? Would you empower us by your spirit to do that more? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.